Amen. Thank you, guys. As always, we appreciate you. It's nice to be led to a place where your heart can soften and get you ready to hear the word, right? Everything we do in service has a point. There's a reason, you know. We sing songs so that our hearts will soften, so that we can hear the word, and that it will give us what we need in order to go out and then do what it says, right? And we pray to get strength. We pray to hear from the Lord. We uh, testify to the goodness of God so we never forget that God is at work in the world, right? Everything has a purpose. This is never meant to be a slick service that you come to so that you can check the box. And that's great, right? We're part of a living work, and that should be exciting to you. It's exciting to me. Listen, we've been going through kings and prophets together, and we've been going through a lot of the kings, and today we're gonna focus on a prophet. Because the king is terrible. The message is super simple when it comes to King Ahab. Don't be like him. Whatever he did, do the opposite. You should probably be all right. We're gonna focus on the prophet who spoke into Ahab's circumstance, into the life of Israel and the nations. Remember, the nation is split now. We've got the northern kingdom of Israel, the southern kingdom of Judah. Ahab was the king of Israel at the time, and he came in and did terrible evil. We'll get to that in a second. It's important that you know what a prophet's job was. A prophet was not a fortune teller, right? A prophet was not somebody you went to to get your future. They didn't throw the dice for you. That's not their their function. They were covenant keepers. They were watching over the covenant to make sure that God's people were doing what he said. And they specifically called out idolatry and injustice. They confronted the kings in order that the people were living according to the way God wanted them to. Does that make sense? That's a little different than a fortune teller or somebody you go to find the future from. Exactly. It's exactly right. There's this thing that we do, and we'll get to this in just a minute, but there's this thing that happens with me specifically. It probably doesn't happen to you, but it does happen to me. Right? We get to be a part of the supernatural work of God. And if you've been part of the supernatural work of God, meaning that you've seen him work through you in the lives of other people, you know, maybe you got to lead somebody to Christ. If you've, if you've never had the opportunity to see somebody receive Jesus as their Lord and Savior, I will pray every day that that happens for you. Because to be a part of watching somebody walking in death and darkness come into the light of the kingdom of God through Jesus, is, it'll literally change your life. Like you have barbecue that'll change your life. It's nothing compared to seeing somebody come to Christ. And by the way, everybody in Texas, I'm not from here, everybody's like, oh, this barbecue will change your life. No, that's not true. Because every barbecue is different. It might have changed your life, but don't be trying to put life-changing barbecue on your friends. Okay, let them decide for themselves. Side note, wasn't in my notes. Just that was a freebie. But in spiritual success, what ends up happening is there's a couple things that we, because we're prized and we ought, and we take a hold of that success and start thinking more highly of ourselves than we ought. And nine times out of 10, after a spiritual success, God will remind you quickly how much you still need him. This happens all the time to me. Man, pastor, that was a good prayer night. Don't tell me that. Pastor, that was a great sermon. I don't want to hear it. Pastor, this, and, or I experience in my own 
private life, some spiritual success, and what ends up happening is then I'm confronted with something hard or difficult or worse, and I end up failing. Have you ever had this happen to you? Have you ever had some spiritual success and you start to be like, oh, this was awesome. And then the next thing that happens is you're like, oh no. And you turn into a totally different person. Like you have this boldness and courage to go do these things. I went, I'm gonna talk to the president of the United States and I'm gonna tell him exactly what he needs to do. And you do and you're like, oh, this is great. And then you like go home and your whole life falls apart and you run away like a little kid and you don't know what you're doing. That ever happened to you? Or am I the only one? I feel very alone right now. <laughs> and when, in general, when after some spiritual success, my failure usually, usually is described by a couple things. I wrongly assumed that I was the only one with all the right information, right? The reason that I was successful or the reason that there was a failure I also usually assume that I'm the only one that knows the right way to do it, right? The right way to deal with it. Or I'm unwilling to deal with things head on. You know, after a big success, you are generally spiritually spent, emotionally and physically spent. And so having to deal with something after the success becomes very difficult to handle. And 10 times out of 10, The reason the failure happens after success is because I can only see a very small part of the picture. I wrongly assume that my view is the full view, right? I don't know if you've done this. We we do this all the time, you know? Things happen in the world, right? And we fret and we worry and we wanna confront and we wanna do all the right things and it's out of a right heart and you go, but we don't always have the same, all the whole picture. We don't have all the information. And so after spiritual success, because we generally are focused on a narrow portion of like the whole world, and because we wrongly assume a few things, we get ourselves into trouble and we can end up running away like little kids instead of standing boldly and continuing the work of God. We're gonna be in 1 Kings, and we're gonna talk about Elijah. We're gonna focus on one specific part of his life, and I'll, we'll get to it. I, wanna, I definitely wanna give you the background and understanding of where we are and why we're where we are, but we're gonna focus on 1 Kings 19, but we're gonna start at chapter 16 at the very end. And it's important because I want you to understand the atmosphere with which Elijah was ministering in. This was not an apathetic, spiritually saturated nation of people who thought they were doing what God wanted them to do. That was not the environment in which he was ministering. He was ministering in an environment of complete and utter disobedience and evil filled with idol worship and terrible things. I want you to understand, we do have some kids in the room, so I'm gonna... I'll, I'll do it my best to tell you what it was without saying it exactly. Is that fair? King Ahab, chapter 16, verse, oh, see, dang it. Sorry. I told you this was gonna happen. Thank you. In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, southern kingdom, Ahab, son of Omri, became king of Israel, and he reigned in Samaria of 22 years. 
It says that Ahab, verse 30, the son of Omri, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord. Listen, more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. So every king before Ahab was terrible, but not as terrible as Ahab. And they did some pretty terrible things. He not only considered it trivial to commit the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, but he also married Jezebel, daughter of the king of the Sidians. And he began to serve Baal and worship him. He set up an altar and he built it in Samaria. Ahab also made Asherah, which is kind of Baal's side idol, made an Ashpel and did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than did all the kings of Israel before him. The next verses, 34 to 36, you can read their end. I'd like you to write a little note, Joshua 6, 26, because in the time that they came, it said anybody who sought to rebuild Jericho would do so at the cost of their firstborn son. This last verse in chapter 16 talks about rebuilding Jericho and how it cost the firstborn son of that, those who did, okay? So you can go Joshua 6, 26 and read what it said so you can understand the context there. And there's this great drought. Now what you need to know about Baal is this. We don't talk about Baal, one, because it's worthless idol, but I wanna tell you and understand why this is actually uh, important. So Baal was considered, uh, uh, this was the God of fertility, the universal God of fertility at the time, and in his capacity, this was his title, that people gave him as this false god. Prince, Lord of the earth. He was also called the Lord of rain and dew, which is funny that there was a drought. Just saying, right? You worship a God who can't provide you what you need and you're the Lord of rain and drought or the rain and dew and nothing, you, you know, it's dry. Interesting. And he's also called the God who rides on the clouds He was even called the Lord of the heavens. Is that interesting? And so there was this drought. We flip over to chapter 18. Now chapter 18 of 1 Kings is one of my favorite stories, uh, histories in the Bible. I say histories because we believe the Bible to be true. Some of it's history, some of it's poetry, some of it's lots of different things, but this is something that we believe happened. And it's hard for us because we see movies. And so what I don't want you to see this as is special effects in your brain. Oh yeah, I've seen that movie before. You've not seen this one. So I want you to uh, hear it with me. So Elijah's been away for three years. In the beginning of chapter 18, he comes back to Ahab. Now, what you don't know is that Ahab had basically put out an all-points bulletin to say, if you see Elijah, that sucker, I want you to bring him to me because I got business with him. Ahab hated Elijah because Elijah spoke the truth of God to him because he was a, remember, he was a covenant keeper. He was watching out to make sure that Israel and Judah were doing their things, and Ahab was not, so he spoke into that. Obviously, Ahab didn't like it. How many times have you been doing the wrong things on purpose and somebody comes and tells you that you're doing, the, you know, that you're doing that wrong and you don't like it either, right? So this is the story where we find out. So, excuse me, Obadiah, he kept the king's palace. So he's out looking for grass for the king's horses and animals and Elijah shows up and he's like, what's up, Obadiah? And Obadiah's like, oh no, right? He's like, oh no, what do I do? He knew who Elijah was. And so Elijah tells Obadiah, hey, I need you to go and tell King Ahab I'm coming to see him. Now, which Obadiah was like, are you trying to kill me? 
Are you trying to get me killed? Because if I go and tell him that you're here and you don't show up, I'm going to lose my life. He did not trust Elijah. Because though he was trying to seek God in private, it says that he was a devout believer. But he was publicly serving Ahab, trying to privately serve God, and that almost never works well. Obadiah says, if you promise you come and I'll go tell him. So he goes and he tells him that Elijah is coming. So Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him, verse 16 of chapter 18. And Ahab went to meet Elijah. When he saw Elijah, he said to him, is that you, you troubler of Israel? How's that for a greeting? Hey, can the elders, they see me coming. They're like, is that you, O troubler of BCF? Just kidding. I'm not anywhere. I'm not trying to compare myself to Elijah. He says, and Elijah confronts him directly. Listen, he's bold, right? He knows, his, he knows his job. He knows his call. He's before this very wicked king that's trying to kill him. In the face of that persecution and that level of um, possible suffering, he says, hey, I'm not the trouble of Israel, bud. I'm not the one who's caused all this trouble. You are. He calls out what has been going on. And it's important that we see his attitude. He says, I've not made trouble for Israel, but you and your father's family have. You've abandoned the Lord's commands and have followed the Baals. Now summon the people from all over Israel to meet me on Mount Carmel. This is in the northwest corner, by the way, of uh, Israel. To meet me on Mount Carmel and bring the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. He issues a throwdown. Meet me in the back of the school, bud. We got some business. I have run away from more than one fight in the back of the school, by the way. That's a different sermon for a different time. He called it out and he said, I'll be there. You bring all the people and all your prophets that you call for false gods because we have some business to take care of. And so Ahab, he sent word through all Israel and assembled the prophets on Mount Carmel. Elijah went before the people. Listen, could you imagine what this would be like in our day and time. For somebody sent by God, very important by the way, not just a self-proclaimed prophet, but somebody sent specifically by God to our president to call this out. You and your father's family have caused trouble for us. You have caused the nation to leave God and follow false gods and idols. And you're like, what idols do we have? We don't have any Asherah poles or false gods that we serve. Oh, really? I wonder if we even could identify those things that vie for our attention, our resources, and our energy that are not God. That keep us from obedience to him. Those would be idols in our lives. You can fill in the blanks. We do have idols. Could you imagine if this happened? And then if that same person confronted and said, you get the entire nation and you meet me, I think Mount McKinley would be cool. Denali in Alaska, one, it's cool. And two, it's in the northwestest corner that I can think of. Northwestest is a new word. I think for all you English guys that are coming at me. And there's this holy spiritual showdown. This is one of my favorite things in the whole Bible. 
He says, all right, we're gonna see, and I'm gonna paraphrase this because I wanna get to chapter 19 and I could, we could spend three weeks just on this. He says, we're gonna decide who the real God is, Baal and Asherah, or the living holy God of Israel who has shown himself to be real throughout our history, who created us, gave us breath in our lungs. He says, this is how we're gonna prove it. He says, you guys build an altar and you slaughter a, a, an animal. You're gonna slaughter and, and you're gonna put it on the altar. right? And then I'm gonna do the same thing. So this is what happens. 850 prophets of Baal and Asherah, they cut up this animal, they put it, and they start to call out. They say, you call out on your God, and the one who answers by fire is the winner. And maybe you know the story. They're like, oh, Baal, prince of the earth, we want you to answer by fire. And they're dancing around, and they're chanting, and do they're cutting themselves. They're doing all this stuff. No one's paid attention. No one's listening. Nothing happened. So Elijah, being a good sport, taunts them. <laughs> hey, maybe you should shout a little louder. Maybe you should dance a little more. Hey, maybe he's in the restroom. Give him a second. And they, they go, oh, and they just ramp it up and ramp it up. Oh, and they're like freaking out. And they're like, oh. And there's this amazing scripture it says midday passed. They've been going at it. Midday passed and they continued their frantic prophesying until the time of the evening sacrifice, but there was no response, no one answered, and no one paid attention. Do you know why? Because Baal and Asherah aren't real. Because they are not God. They are not living. They are not alive. They were a fictional representation of what people wanted God to be but they weren't real or alive, so they did not hear, they did not answer, no one paid attention. And then Elijah says to all the people, he says, look, come over here. And he repaired the altar that had been built to the Lord, that had been set aside and broken down by the people because they had not been worshiping the true living God. And he says a simple prayer, God, prove yourself to these people. And they poured 12 jars of water on that sacrifice to make sure that he couldn't get out his little Bic lighter and start it himself. There was no way that, it, that outside of an act of God that this altar was gonna light on fire. And maybe you know, it says at that time of sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed, O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done all these things in your command. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, so these people will know that you, O Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. And it says the fire of the Lord fell, <gasps> boom. I don't know about you, I've tried this and I have not gotten it to work yet. Early in my faith, I was like, hey, wouldn't it be cool? It was right after the prayer to try to get the mountains to jump into the sea, testing my measure of faith. Apparently, a mustard seed is too much for me. But fire, and it obliterates both sacrifices. And then Elijah goes and he takes all 850 prophets and he goes and he slaughters them down in the valley. And then we come to chapter 19, right? He's up on Mount Carmel at that time, before chapter 19, sorry. There had been no rain. He tells Ahab, you better head back to town before you don't make it because rain's a coming. 
because your God of rain can't accomplish what the living God can. And he says, head on back because you're gonna wanna get there before this storm comes. So he leaves, and of course you know this, he prayed and he prayed and he prayed and God brought the rain. And then he gave him supernatural strength to run back to Jezreel ahead of the chariots and the horses, 20 miles. I'm not a runner, but last time I checked, people can't outrun horses without the supernatural hand of God. It was great, isn't it? That's like the coolest story in the whole Bible. Fire falling from heaven to prove that God is the bomb over all the false, unliving, dead gods that people serve. And we could probably say amen and sit down. But what happens next, because you're like, Elijah's the best. This dude's awesome. He's bold and proud and he's courageous. He listens to God. He's obedient. He does what he says. And God answers with fire. And the people are just like, whoa, God's the best. Verse 19, now Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah. Now, I don't know about you. After you call down fire, you're probably walking pretty tall. And I wouldn't really care what anybody said. At least that's how I feel right now. Right? You just whooped up on all the false god prophets. And Ahab goes and tattles on you to his wife, Jezebel, who, by the way, was a bad mamma jamma. If you know that phrase, you're as old as me. Listen, this woman was tough. She caught people, did what she said, and she was absolutely evil, leading a whole group of people astray with Ahab. And Jezebel sent a message to Elijah, may the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely. Little G, by the way, if by this time tomorrow I don't make your life like that of one of them. She's like, game on, homie, I'm coming to get you. You killed my prophets. I'm gonna pray to little G gods and I'm gonna come find you and I'm gonna kill you just like you did to them. Now, I don't know about you, but if, from my perspective, you just called down fire from the living big G God, proving his might, proving his holiness, proving his bigness, it wouldn't matter who sent me a note, be like, oh, you're gonna die. Be like, oh yeah, I just called down fire, bring it on. That's how I think that he should have responded personally. But as we talked about earlier, that's not always how it goes. He was emotionally spent. He just run 20 miles ahead of the chariots and he found himself being threatened by a worldly person who prayed to dead gods. Verse three, let's see what it says. Elijah was afraid and he ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there. Now, what you need to know about this is that he ran, it was about, his final destination was about 300 miles from Jezreel, where he was. So he'd run 20 miles ahead of the horses, right? He didn't, he didn't take any of the supplements or the post-workouts that he probably needed. He was probably pretty tired. But when Jezebel threatened him, he runs to Beersheba, which is about 100 miles. It's a third of the way to his destination. And he leaves his servant there, and he sits under a broom tree, right, after he went a day's journey by himself. I have had enough, Lord. Take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. Then he laid down under the tree and fell asleep. He said, God, just kill me already. I can't do this. 
this service to you, this, that was really great on Mount Carmel, but this, this is too much, right? Because after spiritual success, when we're depleted, that's when the enemy comes to get us, isn't it? Isn't it when we start to experience that spiritual attack in a, in a heavier way because we are depleted emotionally and spiritually, we're tired and exhausted, and we don't have the ability to stand on our own, and, and he falls asleep hoping to die and it says, all at once an angel touched him and said, get up and eat. He looked around and there by his head was a cake of bread. God fed him and said, I want you to get up and eat for the journey is too much for you. Oh, get up and eat for the journey is too much for you. God gives us sustenance when we're weak, does he not? He says, my power is made perfect in weakness, is what he told Paul. When Paul found himself in a similar circumstance, take this thorn away. Nope, my grace is sufficient. My power is made perfect in weakness. So he got up and ate. Strengthened by that food, he traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. There he went and came to spend the night. This is the same place that God met Moses. See, when he was fleeing his enemies, Elijah knew that he needed to go meet with God. Now, the problem was he was going the wrong direction. He ran opposite of the way that he was posted. God wanted him in Jezreel to speak truth into the circumstance, and he ran the opposite direction out of fear that he couldn't do it on his own. Here's what it says, verse 10. It says, and the word of the Lord came to him. What are you doing here? Have you ever pursued God after spiritual success and you experience failure and you go and you're like, oh God, I wanna meet with you. And he's like, what are you doing here? <laughs> I think this is hilarious. Only because we want him to go, oh buddy, it's okay. Yeah, no, come on in. It's, you come over here and sit down. Because we believe that God wants us to be comfortable rather than obedient. We want it to be true that God cares more about our comfort than he does about our obedience and trust in him. We have the false understanding that God, that God thinks safety is the priority above obedience and trust. Have you read the whole Bible? Most of these people walked into danger. God led them into danger. He did not have them put a helmet on. Now, I'm not saying you shouldn't wear a helmet when you do crazy things, I'm just saying that we have grown up in a society where we believe that God cares about us being comfortable. And it's just not true. You will be persecuted. You will suffer. I mean, he led Jesus in the desert. He was hungry and tired, and then the devil came. So Elijah goes and he says, what are you doing here? And he, probably, and he goes, I've been very zealous. And he lays out his case. I've been zealous. I've been doing what you told me to do, God. Did you see the thing on Mount Carmel? That was pretty cool. He says, I'm the only one left. Your prophets have been put to death by the sword. I'm the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. He did not have the whole picture. He assumed that he was the only one left, that his perspective was the full picture. This is what happens to us too. Let's see what God says. The Lord said in verse 11, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord was about to pass by. He had just seen God answer with fire, Let's see how God answers him this time. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. 
After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not on the earthquake. And after the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a whisper, a gentle whisper. And Elijah walked out, covered himself up, and conversed with the living God in a whisper. See, we want the fire. We want the mountains falling apart. We want the grandiose special effects God. But that's not always how he talks, is it? And in his failure, he hears a whisper. And a voice says, what are you doing here? And he repeats himself. I've been very zealous. I'm the only one left and they're trying to kill me. Verse 15, listen. The Lord said to him, go back the way you came. What? God, do you know that I came 300 miles to see you? And he's saying, go back the way you came because he wasn't where he was supposed to be. See, he ran without God's direction. In a direction which is not where he was supposed to be. God had him where he was. But out of fear, he ran the opposite. Go back the way you came and go to Damascus. When you get there, anoint Hazael king over Aram. Also anoint Jehu son over Israel. And anoint Elisha son of Shaphat to secede you as prophet. He says, Jehu will put to death any who escaped the sword of Hazael, and Elisha will put to death any who escaped the sword of Jehu. Yet I reserve 7,000 in Israel. Elijah's perspective was that he was the only one left. God had been working in the background. God had 7,000 that he had planted who were for him and obeying him and were gonna do what he wanted to do. He had the plan already taken care of. But because Elijah could only see a small part of the world and assume that he was the only one that had the information and he was the only one that knew how to do it himself, he got himself in trouble. He didn't remember that God is at work even though he didn't know it. Because God's not required to tell you everything that he is doing. God is not required to post what he's going to do on Facebook so that you can keep up with him. He's God. We are to obey and trust him as he gives us the information, which is super annoying, I realize, but that's how it works. Yet I reserve 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed to Baal and all whose mouths have not kissed him. When Elijah ran away, he ended up somewhere he wasn't supposed to be, fretting about circumstances that he couldn't control, and he was forgetting the faithfulness and power of God that he had already experienced. How quickly do we falter? Hmm? How quickly do we forget when the world's falling around, uh, apart around us? We have to choose to remember the goodness and faithfulness of God up to that point. We have to remember that he's the only one who has the whole picture in mind. He's the only one who has it taken care of because he's the only one that can see it all. And in fact, he's the only fix. As great as you are and as great as we think we are, we are not the solution to the world's problems. Did you know that? You and I get to be a part of the solution, but the actual fix to all the problems that we find ourselves fretting and worrying about, all of that is fixed, not in our effort, but in the power of the living God who brought fire down on those sacrifices and who already had in place the succession plan for not just the kings, but Elijah as well. 
And it doesn't always come in a big thundering cloud or cry or fire or earthquake. Sometimes we have to be willing to listen a little longer and a little farther at what he's doing. Just because you can't see God working doesn't mean he isn't. Just because you can't see that God is working doesn't mean he isn't. Do you find yourself fretting about the suffering, the persecution that you experience, maybe that the world is experiencing? I'm gonna leave you with this. We're gonna sing and we're gonna pray. I want you to hear this. We have a tendency to not persevere because of fear. And I want to remind you the type of people that we have been called to. For we know him who said, it is mine to avenge, I will repay. The Lord will judge his people. It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Remember those earlier days after you had received the light when you stood your ground in great contest in the face of suffering? You remember that when you were zealous for the Lord? Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. In this country, probably not. At other times, you stood side by side with those who were so treated. Possibly, I hope so. You sympathized with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. So do not throw away your confidence. Listen, church, this is for you and to you. Do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. You need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised. For in just a little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. But my righteous one will live by faith. And if he shrinks back, I will not be pleased with him. Listen, but we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who believe and are saved. Whether you are on Mount Carmel experiencing the power of God or you have run away because of fear and because you don't know what's next, you were not called to shrink back and to settle for failure, but to stand up and say, yes, Lord, and walk in obedience, trusting that he has the whole thing taken care of. That he has the plan, even though you can't see it, and even though you can't see him working doesn't mean that he isn't. Take this week, I wanna challenge you, take this week, take an assessment of your life. If you've run 300 miles the wrong direction, know that God is saying, hey, it's time to get back in there. If you're experiencing success, Make sure that you get refreshed and that you eat and drink what God has provided you for sustenance so that you can take the journey well because it's too much for you. So that we don't experience that space where we come to the Lord and he said, what are you doing here? I need you to go back where I put you. Because that's my plan, which is far greater than yours. Heavenly Father, I do thank you for your work in our lives. Thank you that you are patient with us. Lord, in that we can experience success and failure and you still use us and you are kind and generous. God, I pray that if there's anything spoken today that is not from you, that it would fall away. 
that it wouldn't be remembered, but God, everything that you have desired for us would sit with us and it would cause us to live differently. I'm gonna ask our prayer partners to come forward and we're gonna end our service the way we always do, which is prayer. If you need prayer, you'd like to be prayed for, you'd like to pray for someone, this is the time to do that. This is an opportunity to interact with God in a greater way as we sing together this song um, and close out our service. But don't miss this. If you don't know Jesus and maybe you've never even met the living God and you want to, come find one of these and they'd like to point you in the right direction. Let's stand together as we continue to worship together.